It's definitely good to be back home in San Francisco with you. Um, my wife and I spent the last two weeks away at CBM camp, so uh, we were a little tired, but uh, we were glad to be back here in San Francisco to be here with our church family. Uh, it's good to be with the students and uh, and to see friends from um, from other churches, but it's always good to be home, to be with family. Um, our, our sermon this morning is going to be found in Psalm 43, and uh, if you would turn with me in your Bibles, jump up actually to Psalm 42. We're going to read uh, Psalm 42 and 43 together, because they're actually one unit, um, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but we're going to read Psalm 42 and 43, just so we get the entire context. Okay, so Psalm 42, uh, it's for the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As the deer... Pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sounds of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver from me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for the fact that you are with us always. And that, Lord, you are the very source and object of our hope, even in times of great sorrow and difficulty. We pray that as we study what your word has to say, that you would be with us and give us ears to hear hearts to understand, eyes to see. And we pray that 
you would show yourself glorious in our eyes. So even if we are not currently, we are not presently dealing with suffering, that when we do suffer, when it eventually does come our way and enters into our homes, that we can remember what you have said to us and we can have hope. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. It is in times of deep sorrow that it can be easy for us to lose hope, even when we're desperate to find it. And it's not like we don't want to hope. It's not like we want to stay in a position of despair. But sometimes it can be difficult to move ourselves into a position where we can respond with full trust in God because... The pain that we feel threatens to overwhelm us. It's during these times that we have to remind ourselves of truth, informing our hearts with the comforting truths that are found in Scripture so that our feelings and our behaviors can catch up with what we know is true from the Scriptures. A short while ago, we studied Psalm 42, and we learned... And we can hope in God in times of sorrow, in times of despair, because hurt reminds us to seek after God. Hurt reminds us to remember God. And hurt reminds us to wait upon God. And even if we don't like suffering, I don't know anyone who likes suffering. Even if we don't like suffering, God has a purpose for our suffering. It is not meaningless. But it accomplishes God's purposes in our lives to grow us, to become more like Christ. A man himself who was acquainted with many sorrows and many griefs. And it also accomplishes God's purpose in our lives to make us capable ministers to those who also suffer hurt. Sometimes we forget the fact that The reason why God allows hurt into our lives is so that we, after we are restored, can go and minister to others. And it's for this reason, as we are trying to remind ourselves not to despise suffering, not to reject it in our lives, the psalmist reminds us that despair does not paralyze us. It does not cause us to lose all hope. Because despair leads us to a desperate and passionate pursuit of God. As a reminder, Psalm 42 and 43 were written by the same psalmist. as one psalm. It's one unit. However, these psalms were split up by the compiler of the book of Psalms for worship purposes. And that purpose becomes clear this morning. Psalm 42 is a lament psalm. It's a psalm that expresses great sorrow before God. And what we'll see today is that Psalm 43, it has elements of lament in it, but there's a tone shift. There's a tone shift. There is hope, so much hope, confident hope in God's deliverance. We're going to see that this morning through three truths that encourage those who are despairing. Three truths that encourage those who are despairing. And the first truth 
that encourages those who are despairing is that despair reminds us of God's power. Despair reminds us of God's power. The psalmist ends Psalm 42 on a note of anticipatory hope in God. As the psalmist is still struggling with his exile, he's still struggling with the oppression that he feels. And yet, because of his hope, he is willing to wait upon God, trusting God to do something about his situation. But what we see here in verse 1 is a cry for vindication. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. That seems slightly contradictory, doesn't it? That the psalmist would say that he can patiently wait upon the Lord. And yet, here, all of a sudden, he's now crying out for vindication. Seems a little contradictory. But it's not. Patiently waiting upon God does not mean that you simply sit on the couch at home and wait for the situation just to get better on its own. Because if God wanted to do something, he'd do something about it. And it's true that God is sovereign. But trusting in him does not mean that we have no personal responsibility over the way that we respond to realizing that we must wait upon the Lord. Now, we're all familiar with Romans 8.28, because whenever we deal with difficult circumstances in our lives, we are told by our well-meaning friends, and perhaps even just reminded by our own personal study, that we can be comforted because God works all things together for our good. And that is true. That is very, very true. He does work all things out according to our good, but... Our own personal involvement with seeking out his good for us is a part of how he works good in our lives. Earlier in Romans 8, verses 9 to 14, Paul tells believers that we are not obligated to live by the flesh if we are truly in Christ. If we are truly in Christ, then we won't be enslaved to sinful deeds. We won't be driven by our fleshly desires. But instead, if we are of the Spirit, if the Spirit does dwell in us, then we will live according to the Spirit. We will live demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And we will demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives because, as Paul says, all who are being led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Being led by the Spirit implies, then, that we are being led to a particular action. That we are living out our faith. And so when we know that God is working out all things for our good, it's not just for us to, for us to sit on the couch and wait for God to come and do something about it. Rather, we are reminded that if we're being led by the Spirit and we know that God is working out things, all, working out all things for our good, that we are also called to respond. As we wait. I'm called to respond as we wait. I'm reminded of that uh, silly story of the man who was uh, in the middle of a flood. His house was about to be taken, uh, overtaken by a flood. And so he climbs to the roof and he's sitting on the roof. And as the flood waters are rising and there's not much left of his house, a boat comes by. And there are people saying, hey, come on, jump on the boat. 
We'll bring you to safety. He says, oh, no, it's okay. I'm all right. God will take care of me. And so they say, all right. And they, and they swim away. And they, they drive away in the boat. Other people come by, offer that same plea. Please save yourself. Get off that, get off that roof. Hop in the boat. Be delivered. No, that's okay. I'm waiting upon the Lord. He'll deliver me. Helicopter comes by. Hey, get off your roof. Climb up. We'll take you to safety. Oh, it's all right. God will take care of me. He'll deliver me. And then the floodwaters rise, rise, rise. He's there treading water. One last boat comes by. Hey, take this life preserver. We'll bring you to safety. Oh, it's okay. God will take care of me. He was hoping that God would miraculously come by and deliver him. What he failed to realize is that as he's waiting upon the Lord to deliver him, that God was trying to, was, was providing a way of deliverance, a way out, and he refused them all. It's a facetious story, of course, because we know that when, um, when this person went to, to heaven, and that's how we know it's a facetious story, he asked God, hey, God, why didn't you save me? And God said, I did. I tried to. I sent all these people to you, and you said no to all of them. Right, that's the story I'm reminded of anyway. Oftentimes we think that waiting upon the Lord means you don't do anything. And that's not true. That's not true. Waiting upon the Lord means that we respond as we wait. We're doing something. And that something, one of the, one of the things that we can do, we'll see, we, we see in verse 1. Right, going back to Psalm 43, the idea of our own personal involvement, while at the same time waiting upon God to work, means that we can pray in faith. Right? That's one of the responses that we can have towards, uh, towards God as we're waiting upon him to do something. We pray in faith according to what we know about God. And in this case, the things that we're praying back to God, the things that we're asking God to do is to act according to his nature. We know that he is an all-powerful deliverer who upholds justice. We know that he is absolutely righteous. And so the psalmist, he's appealing to God's character. He's appealing to God's righteousness, to God's justice. And he's asking God for vindication. And that word vindication, it can also be understood as a request by the psalmist to obtain judgment for himself. He's asking God, God, please get me, ju- uh, please get me righteousness. Please deliver me. Obtain judgment for me by judging those who have oppressed me. So as the psalmist is patiently waiting upon God, he's asking God, God, please, please act in a way that is consistent with your character. Uphold justice. Uphold righteousness. Please, I'm being treated unjustly. Please pursue justice for me. And that request for justice, it's confirmed as the psalmist also asks, or also says, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. The psalmist is essentially asking God to be a lawyer on his part against those who've oppressed him. As was in the case in Psalm 42, we have no indication from the text who the psalmist is writing about. We don't know who his enemies are. We don't know how many of them there are. There's no clear identity of who they are. The psalmist is likely in exile because he talks about how he's remembering worship in Jerusalem from, um, from, the peak, from the land of Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, and from Mount Mazar, which 
puts him near the border of Syria. So because of that, we know that he's not home where he was. He was not in Jerusalem. And his complaint to God is further explained by the cry at the end of verse 1 when he's asking God for deliverance from the deceitful and unjust man. This psalmist, the reason why he is suffering, the reason why he is in despair is because others have treated him unjustly. Because they've oppressed him. And they've driven him out of his home. And they've exiled him to Syria. And so, because he's experienced that injustice, because he wants to go home to worship God, to be with the rest of God's people, he's crying out for justice. He's crying out for deliverance. And that brings up a very interesting observation. As the psalmist is praying to God and he's appealing to God's character as the righteous one of Israel to pursue justice for him, he does so by appealing to God as if he was trying to get someone to take a legal case and bring it to court. Yet, who would God, acting as a lawyer, take the case to? Were he to take up this case and bring it to court? There's no higher power. God would actually be taking it to himself. God is being asked here to act as lawyer and judge. He knows the intentions of man's heart. So he knows that the psalmist is not self-righteous in his request. He knows that the psalmist is not someone who thinks he's innocent, but is not. He knows that the psalmist has dealt with a massive injustice. And because he knows that the psalmist is innocent, God absolutely could present this case before himself against the ungodly nation, against the people who put him in exile. And he could immediately rule in the psalmist's favor and bring judgment to the unjust men who have hurt the psalmist. God absolutely could have done that. He could have done something about that situation, but he has allowed for this unjust situation to occur with no indication why. And it's for this reason the psalmist He cries out in desperation while he patiently waits upon God because he knows that God will do something eventually. But he doesn't know when God will do something. And so, as he is patiently waiting upon God, he's asking God, God, please act according to your character. So he knows that God will act in a way that's consistent with his character. And yet, though he knows that God is good, that he knows that God can absolutely do something about his situation, the psalmist is perplexed. He doesn't understand what's happening. Verse 2. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The psalmist knows. The psalmist knows that God can and will act as his advocate. He knows that God has the ability to save and deliver. And he even affirms here that God is the God of his strength, or God is his stronghold, his place of safety. So God could have protected the psalmist from what the deceitful and unjust men did, but he did not. God could have provided deliverance, 
But instead, the psalmist was taken away from Jerusalem and is now in Syria with nothing more than former memories of corporate worship. It's for this reason that the psalmist, though he knows that God is righteous, is praying to God and asking for justice. And he's also wondering, God, why? Why have you rejected me? Why am I in a constant state of mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? While the psalmist is unsure of why God has placed him in this position, notice, though, that he does not accuse God of foul play. He doesn't accuse God of wrongdoing. Instead, he recognizes, as did Job, that there are times... When God allows inexplicable circumstances into our lives to accomplish greater purposes. God is not the cause of evil. But he sovereignly allows it to occur in our lives to cause us to grow. He sovereignly allows it into our lives to accomplish his purposes. That would not have been evident to us were we not put in a position where we had to wait upon him. Sometimes we don't know and we don't receive an explanation as to why God does what he does. And when we're in those situations, we can't simply just assume that we know the exact reasons why we suffer. Because God doesn't always explain why he allowed for us to suffer. And even after we suffer, he doesn't, all, he doesn't even guarantee that we'll find out the purpose on this side of eternity. If you think back to Job, right, when Job lost everything, and then he had to endure the false accusations from his friends, and then he was rebuked by a young man, and then eventually rebuked by God, once he repented, he got everything back. It's almost kind of like, why did I go through it in the first place? There's no explanation. Job got everything back. Of course, it was different, but he got everything back. And after he got everything back, he eventually died, went to heaven. But when he died, he didn't receive any sort of understanding of why he had to go through everything in the first place. And so sometimes, like Job, all we can do is look to God with eyes of faith and place our trust in Him because there's nothing else that we can do in our suffering. Brothers and sisters, when we enter into times of uncertainty and we must patiently wait upon God to accomplish His purposes in our lives, we are not to merely sit around waiting for God to do something. What we see modeled by the psalmist that we still can do something. We can pray. We can pray expectantly. We can pray with eyes of faith, with eyes of trust, knowing that God will act in accordance to his character. God will do something. The wicked do not go unpunished for their deeds because God is not mocked. The Lord reminds us that vengeance is his. He will repay. He will judge the unrighteous. All sin will be dealt with in this life. And for those who are continually unrepentant, their sin will be dealt with for all of eternity as they suffer the wrath of God against all their sin. 
And what I mean when I say that all sin will be dealt with in this life is that Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. No man escapes that. Well, one did. But he was also God. And he defeated the curse of death, of sin, death. So as we pray, it might not seem like much. Right? It might not seem like you have much when, all, when you have to patiently wait upon God that all you have is prayer. But the psalmist prays because he knows that no one else can do anything about his situation. No one else can deliver him. No one else can provide him the solutions. Only God can. His despair has reminded him that hope in his situation can be found in no one other than God. And so, brothers and sisters, when we are in a place where we have to wait upon God, we pray. When we know that there's no, when we don't know what else to do, we pray because we know that in our despair there's hope found in no one else but God. Despair drives the psalmist to recognize and remember that God alone has power to deliver, and that is so helpful for us to consider. God has all the power. If he wanted to deliver us right away, he absolutely could. But at this moment, he has sovereignly ordained for us to experience what we are experiencing. So, we do not despise suffering, even though we don't like it. Even though we wish it would just go away. Even though we desperately want God to remove it from our lives. We don't despise the suffering because we know that God is doing something. And so we wait. We wait upon him knowing that he's good. That he is, even though we can't see it, causing all things to work together for our good. And that we will eventually, we will eventually see his deliverance. And that brings us to the second point. The second encouragement for those who are in despair. Is that despair reminds us of God's goodness. Despair reminds us of God's goodness. Verse 3 to 4. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre, I shall praise you, O God, my God. Verses 1 to 2 continue to have that tone of Psalm 42. As the psalmist continues to lament about his situation and pleads for God's vindication. Yet here, in verses 3 to 4, we see the tone shift. We see that though the psalmist was lamenting over his situation, that he was not left completely without hope. Instead, he changes tones and he has great confidence in God. This request by the psalmist for God's light and truth is, an, is again an appeal to God to demonstrate his character. God's faithfulness to his people will be seen as he himself is the one who provides deliverance according to his righteous character. Now, when it comes to what God's light is, some commentators have explained that God's light is the light that takes the psalmist out of his darkness. Some, have said, some others have said that it is God's light that reveals the path back to worship, back to Jerusalem for the psalmist to get out of exile. But that's also speculation. So it's not clear, it's not certain what this light is. 
And as a result, it's probably better for us not to assign a poetic or spiritualized meaning to God's light as one that will figuratively light the path for the psalmist out of his personal season of darkness, especially since the psalmist himself never actually describes his situation as one of spiritual darkness. Yes, he makes references to being in the night in Psalm 42, but if you look at it in context, those references to the night are talking about actual night, literal nighttime, not spiritual darkness, not spiritual night. And for that reason, I don't feel comfortable thinking that God's light, at least in this context, the way that the author intends it, is as one of talking about this, the spiritualized leading him out of his own um, personal darkness or path that points the psalmist back to Jerusalem. Instead, it's probably better to understand God's light and truth as a part of who God is, part of his character, part of his person. In Psalm 36, 9, David says that God is a fountain of life and that in God's light, we see light. It's through our understanding of God's holy character, his righteous character, that we understand righteousness, that we understand his absolute purity, his absolute holiness, his absolute perfection. Paul similarly describes God in 1 Timothy 6.16 as one who dwells in, in, sorry, in unapproachable light. And that refers to God's holiness, to God's glory. And so God's light, therefore, should not be limited to something that refers to how God will take his people out of a time of spiritual darkness into hope, because it can also refer to aspects of God himself. We know that God's truth is his word. God's truth is his word. So we're we're at, so what we see here is a plea for this, from, from the psalmist, God, you take me out. You deliver me. This request for light and truth from this perspective, as it refers to God's attributes, reminds us that God himself is the one who delivers us. He is the one who will comfort us. He will lead the psalmist to the place where the psalmist can rejoice in his circumstances. 1 Peter 5.10 tells us that after we have suffered for a little while, that the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish those who experience suffering. So God himself is the one who, after he allows the grace gift of suffering into our lives, he will be the one who puts us back together, who holds us in his arms, binds the wounds and establishes us and perfects us. God is the one who will do that. And that's what the psalmist is remembering. He knows that God will do that. He knows that God will take care of him. That's why he's asking God, God, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. He wants to go to a place. He wants to be, to be put in a position where he can worship the Lord again. And it's through the reminder of God's goodness, the fact that God himself will be the one who demonstrates his love and care for us in our pain, in our suffering, is because of that reminder of God's goodness that the psalmist goes from a state of lament to joy as he remembers that he doesn't have to stay in his sorrow. He doesn't have to grieve as those with no hope, but he can have hope because God himself 
is the one who will deliver. Consider this. The psalmist is still writing from exile. He writes a part of this psalm in lament because he's in a place where he doesn't know whether he'll ever return home to Jerusalem to worship again with God's people. And yet he speaks out about this hope that he will have to worship God again. There's no indication here that the psalmist will ever go back to Jerusalem. There's no promise that he gets to go back there. And as the psalmist wakes up day by day, he'll remember that. Wouldn't you remember that? If you were taken from your home unjustly and you wake up every morning knowing that you are not at home, that you are separated from your family, that you're separated from your church, that you've been separated from worship, you would remember that, wouldn't you? That's what the psalmist is remembering. That's why he is grieving. That's why he is in despair. Because he wakes up every day knowing that he is not at home. Knowing that he has been taken away from God's people. And he desperately longs to return home so he can be with God's people and so he can worship God together with them. Yet, there is no promise that he goes home. But at the same time, he still has confidence. He still has confidence that he will again worship. We see references to God's holy hill, to God's dwelling places, and to the altar. But that doesn't mean that the psalmist is referring strictly to Jerusalem. We know he wants to go back to Jerusalem, if at all possible. That's where he wants to be. That's his home. That's where worship uh, happens, and that's where he used to lead the processions in worship. But God can be worshipped from anywhere, and he knows that. Without downplaying the importance of Jerusalem and God's chosen nation of Israel, the idea that God can be worshipped from anywhere on earth is affirmed by Jesus in his encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well in John four twenty one twenty four. 24. She was saying, worship is here in Gerizim. Right? I know you Jews say it's in Jerusalem, but it's here in Gerizim. Because that's where the law was given. That's where the blessings were given. And Jesus says, it's not this mountain or that mountain. But an hour is coming when we will worship God together in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. We know also from the Old Testament that God's people worshipped him from anywhere. Abraham worshipped God from the land of Ur, of Chaldees. And the people of Israel, when they were in Egypt, they worshipped God from Egypt. When they were in the wilderness, they worshipped God from the wilderness. Before they even entered into the land of Canaan, when they were on the plains of Moab, they worshipped him there. And afterwards, when the kingdom was divided and they eventually got exiled because of their sin, they worshipped him from Assyria and Babylon. God can be worshipped anywhere by those who love him. It's not relegated to a particular geographical location. And so when the psalmist says here that he's going to, that he will go to the altar of God, he certainly desires Jerusalem, but he also understands ultimately that the worship that the worship of God can happen anywhere. And he desires, uh, when, when he mentions the altar, he is talking about it figuratively. He knows that he will go worship God where God can be found. And, and we know that, that, that he's mainly 
talking about God. He's mainly longing for God, not the physical altar itself. Because he says right after, he explains, he explains that phrase, altar of God, with, To God, my exceeding joy. It's not just the altar. He doesn't, you know, the altar, it's, it's there. But the most important thing that the psalmist wants is God. He wants God. He doesn't want the altar. He wants God because God is his exceeding joy. Now, verse 4 is very familiar to us, especially those of us uh, familiar with John Piper's ministry, because this is one of the verses that he always points to in times of, of sorrow, that we will go to God, God our exceeding joy, and Piper is certainly right about that. The psalmist, as he is in despair, as he is in exile due to an unidentified but certainly ungodly group of enemies he is reminding himself of the power of god the attributes of god and he moves from lament to worship because of god the hope of god the worship of god he has confidence that he will again worship god because he knows that god is his source of exceeding joy now this does not mean that the psalmist is as uh, as he's in exile happy-go-lucky that he's so happy to be in exile. Oh, yay, I'm glad that I'm suffering and dealing unjustly with my, uh, de- being dealt with unjustly. He's not happy. Oh, no, he's still in despair. He's still sorrowful, but he is full of joy. He is full of hope, of contentment, because he knows, he recognizes the goodness of God how satisfying that is he has God that that reminds me of that song all I have is Christ I think at times in times of suffering we think that we are left with nothing left but our health and Christ and we look at that as a bad thing that we're bereft of everything except for just ourselves and Christ we take the tone of sorrow. And yes, it is sorrowful. But brothers and sisters, when you sing that, when you sing that truth, all I have is Christ, that should be enough. It's not, oh man, all I have is Christ. What am I to do? No, instead it's, all I have is Christ. And he is enough. He is enough for me. And that's all that I have. That is enough. That's good enough. Because he is all satisfying. The psalmist recognizes God's great power and his great worth. He recognizes that all that God is, all that God has done is a treasure that he can embrace. And that's why God is the psalmist and ours our exceeding joy. So the goodness of God, His full, His full nature, His full character, is satisfying to us because God is truly enough for us. The third encouragement for those who are in despair is that despair reminds us to hope in God. Despair reminds us to hope in God. Verse five. Why are you in despair, O my soul? 
And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. We've returned to that familiar refrain from Psalm 42, but there is a difference in tone here. Psalm 42, the psalmist was hoping with courageous defiance toward his situation and his despair. He was pushing against it. He was pushing back. He was fighting, desperately trying to remind himself, desperately trying to convince himself that he can hope in God. That's where we find ourselves in suffering at times, right? You know that you ought to. You know that you can trust in God. Because theologically, you know that God is sovereign. We know that theologically. We know that intellectually. But when the rubber hits the ground, and you have to actually live out a trust in God's sovereignty, that is much harder, isn't it? When you attend the seminary of suffering, it's so much harder to actually believe that God is sovereign. That's what drives people to respond in anger towards God. That's what drives people to only focus in on the good promises of God. God, I thought you were going to protect me. God, I thought you were going to provide for me. Where are you? He's not lost. He hasn't gone away. He's still there in your suffering. Right, but when we get put in a position where we have to actually live out a belief in the sovereignty of God, sometimes we lose hope. We're fighting desperately. We're clawing and scratching to get that hope back. And that's where the psalmist was in Psalm 42. That's not where he is in Psalm 43. Psalm 43, as he's reminding himself of God's power. As he's reminding himself of God's goodness and how satisfying God is. And he's singing songs of praise to God, reminding his heart of truth, not just from what he knows theologically, but even in worship. Here in verse 5, he shifts, and now he's not clawing and scratching. It's not courageous defiance against his despair, but now it's confident hope. That pushes the despair out. He is absolutely confident that God will deliver him. So he tells his heart, hope in God. For I shall again praise him. Because he is the help of my countenance and my God. The psalmist is still left with the same question. He still feels the despair that was brought upon him by his suffering. His situation hasn't changed. He's still in exile. But instead of just hoping for the strength to get through, the psalmist is moved to a place of confident hope because he has faith in God, even though he still is in his circumstances. And because he has that faith, despite his circumstances, he knows that he can continue on. He can press on because God is with him. For those of you who are believers here this morning, this is the hope that you have in your suffering. And some of you might not be suffering right now. That's okay. You need to know this 
for when you are in suffering. So that when you are in a place where you are challenging the sovereignty of God, when you are finding it difficult to believe that he even cares about you one iota, that you remember he does. That perhaps in the midst of your grief and your pain, God will remind you of these truths. So even though it will still hurt, you'll remember him. And then you remember that he's doing something, that he hasn't forgotten you. He doesn't forget those who are his. He doesn't lose any of those who are his. He keeps them. This is the hope that you have. So, you might still be like the psalmist in Psalm 42. But remember that eventually the Lord will give you the strength through his Holy Spirit to get you to Psalm 43. Where it's a confident hope that pushes past pushes past the grief. It pushes past the despair. For those of you who are here this morning and you are not saved. You have not repented of your sins. You have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the hope that God wants to offer to you. I don't know why he has done certain things in your life. I don't know why he has allowed for you to experience certain circumstances in your life. I can't answer that. But I do know that God loves you very, very much. That he loved you so much that while you were still a rebel, while you hated him and wanted nothing to do with him, while you still hate him and want nothing to do with him, that he loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. For you. So that when you believe, when you repent of your sins, you can be forgiven. It might not, it might not change your circumstances right away. It might not, you, you might be left still in your circumstances. There is hope. There's hope. Because God does care for you. Because God wants to bring you back to himself. And even if you have nothing else, you have him. That is enough. This morning, we looked at three truths that encourages those who are despairing. Despair reminds us of God's power. He absolutely can do do things about our situation. He absolutely can deliver. He himself is the one who is all-powerful. He himself will do everything to get everything out of the way to bring us back to himself. He will be the one who, after we suffer, will bind the wounds. He is all-powerful. We also know, because of his power, that when it comes to his goodness, when we're despairing and we're remembering God's goodness, we know that nothing will stop that goodness from getting to us. We will experience it. We will see it. We will hope again. We will worship again. Because God's goodness is enough for us. And finally, despair also reminds us to hope in God. It reminds us to hope in God. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's not fun. We can hope in Him because we know He is doing something. And that He's not done yet. Suffering is not fun. We don't want to embrace it. And yet, 
we know that because God is doing something, we are not to despise it. We're not to reject it. We're not to consider ourselves cursed. But we're to remember that James says that we are to consider ourselves blessed when we enter into times of trial. We're going to consider ourselves blessed because we know that God is using it in our lives to strengthen our faith and to bring Him glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful to You because we know that hope can be found in You. And that hope is the thing that carries us through the times where we are in despair, when we are grieving, when we are hurting, when we don't know why you've allowed certain things into our lives. And because of that hope, we can worship you. Because of that hope, we can sing songs that remind us of your goodness, that remind us of your faithfulness. And so in times where it will be difficult, we pray that you would bring these truths back to our minds so that we will not grieve like those who have no hope. But we will grieve with confidence that you are doing something and that you still care for us. And for those of us who are not suffering at this moment, we pray that, Lord, you would give us a heart of compassion for those who are suffering. May we strive our hardest to show the love of Christ to those who are hurting so that they will be reminded of your goodness and of your care for them. There are many who are hurting in our church right now. And Father, we pray that you would remind them of this truth and that you would help us to lovingly come alongside them as their brothers and sisters so that they can be reminded of your love. Thank you so much for your grace to us. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen.